Dr. Bapu Jenna, MD-PhD, is the Joseph P. Newhouse Professor of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School and a physician in the Department of Medicine at MGH. He's also a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. As an economist and physician, Dr. Jenna's research involves several areas of health economics and policy, including the use of natural experiments in healthcare, the economics of physician behavior, and the physician workforce, medical malpractice, the economics of healthcare productivity, and the economics of medical innovation. We talk about the natural experiments that he uses in economics to move medicine forward, what the pandemic has taught him about how people make their health care decisions. We also talk about the limited impact so far that value-based care and price transparency have had and how this is unlikely to change anytime soon. Dr. Jenner graduated Phi Beta Kappa from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, received his MD and PhD in economics from the University of Chicago, and completed his residency in internal medicine at MGH. He is the host of the Freakonomics MD podcast, which explores the hidden side of healthcare. Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner, the authors of Freakonomics, have only given the Freakonomics name to someone once before in the Freakonomics movie, which demonstrates how much esteem they have for Dr. Jenna. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Papujana, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's just give the audience a little introduction about what it is you do. Because of your education in economics, you think about problems differently than many of uh, physicians like myself. So let's talk a little about the marriage of economics and, and medicine. How do you use an economic way of thinking to push our field a little further? So Brad, Brad you're assuming this is a good marriage. <laughs> That's, that, that may not be a right assumption. Uh, it's a marriage, whether it's a good one or a bad one, I don't know. Um, you know, I think medicine and economics and healthcare are related in a lot of um, different ways. Uh, um, healthcare economists are interested in all sorts of things related to physician behavior, what it is that make physicians do what they do. Um, uh, they're interested in patient decisions, why it is that patients make the medical decisions about their health that they do or that they, that they don't. Uh, the field is interested in the organization of healthcare markets. Um, so there's a, tons of different things that economists are interested in in the world of healthcare. And, it, and it's not a surprise if you think about the impact that health has on society. Just in financial terms, it's, it's almost 20% of national GDP in this country. So it's a big chunk of what we spend our, our money on. But medicine is also fascinating because of, of um, the sort of decision-making that unfolds. They just think about a patient, there's tremendous uncertainty in terms of what treatments might work or not work. There are emotional issues that guide decision-making. There are financial issues that guide decision-making. There's, as I mentioned, there's a lot of uncertainty, so they don't know, and doctors may not know what's going to work and, and what's gun, not going to work. So that's a, you know, that's a ripe setting for economics as a discipline that studies you know, human behavior and, and as one of the things that it does to kind of weigh in. So I, I kind of see that as the place where I, where I sit really at that intersection. And I've heard you talk about the, the model, you know, instead of using randomized controlled trials, you look for 
I think you refer to them as natural studies, right? Where you can just tease out two similar cohorts to see if there are different outcomes. You know, you try to, so can you talk about how you, you know, assess the situation to try and pull out data rather than, you know, in the gold standard randomized placebo controlled trial? Yeah, absolutely. So a, a fundamental thing that a physician has to do when they diagnose a patient is to decide what treatment they think is best. And ideally, they would be able to rely on randomized controlled trial evidence to guide that decision. Um, sometimes that's available. A lot of times it's not available. And it might not be available because no studies have been done comparing the treatments that that they have at hand to choose from. Other times it may have been done in some populations, but not the specific population that a, a physician um, is, is treating. So ideally randomized trials are what a doctor would use to base his or her decision on. Uh, what, what I focus on a lot of my research is a tool that economists use, uh, use quite often, but epidemiologists also use them. We call them natural experiments. And the basic idea is that for many decisions that we would want information on, we don't have that randomized trial evidence. Um, and it's often inappropriate just to compare people using observational data who got a treatment and people who didn't get a treatment, because the people who get treated are very different than the ones who don't. I mean, let me give you sort of a wild example. If you look at patients who get cancer drugs and you compare them to people who don't get cancer drugs, people with cancer drugs live shorter lives. And that's because they have cancer, not because the cancer drugs are causing them to live shorter lives. Now, obviously, you would say, Bapu, well, you should at least compare like to like and compare people who have cancer to other people who have cancer. And Brad, I would agree with that. But it turns out there's many more dimensions of what affects uh, a doctor and a patient's decision to use treatment that researchers like myself, we can't observe. And so it's not really meaningful to make these sorts of comparisons where there's no randomization occurring. And what we do in economics and what I've tried to do quite a bit of in medicine is to find these instances where there are experiments that are happening around us sort of accidentally that uh, we may not know that we're part of as patients or doctors may not know that patients are part of, but nonetheless create the situation where some patients are really by chance, by accident, exposed to one path of care and other people are exposed to a very different path. Uh, path of care. And that's the basic idea behind a, a natural experiment. And I can give you some some examples from my own work or others' work to sort of illuminate what it, what it actually looks like, but that's the basic idea. I think we're going to be getting to that um, a little further on in, into the interview. I think we're going to be able to get uh, to some of, some of the examples of your own research and others' research that you've discussed. Um, so, but let's, I want to just take a little step, a little broader view of let's say you were taking uh giving a lecture to a medical school class mm -hmm. and you wanted to impart to them you know some of the principles of economics that you would hope would guide them in either their day-to-day -day clinical setting or if they were to become researchers and you would like them to have some principles of economics you know that uh, to, to help guide them what would you talk to the class about I'd probably talk about two things. Um, one is uh, something that economists worry a lot about and think a lot about, which is incentives. So I would think about uh, 
I talked to them about incentives. What are the incentives for companies to develop new drugs? What are the incentives that doctors face when they decide whether or not to adopt a new medical technology? What are the incentives that patients face when they decide whether or not to use a drug that a doctor has recommended to them? Incentives are everywhere in life, and they're certainly everywhere in medicine, and I think they matter a lot. So that's one thing I would talk about. The second thing I would talk to students about, particularly in medicine, is how to think about causation when you're reading a new study in a medical journal. Uh, because medical journals are really littered with examples of studies where one treatment is compared to another, not in a randomized trial. And investigators, uh, the, the authors of the studies will sometimes suggest that, look, treatment A is better than treatment B. It's not been randomized. Um, and we try to hold constant a lot of patient factors that we, we think will solve the problem that the people who get drug A are different than the people who get drug B, but it doesn't. And so what I would tell students is if you're reading a study and it's either A, not randomized, or B, it, it doesn't you know, show you how you can account for the fact that these two groups are fundamentally different, those who receive treatment and those who do not. And there's no sort of quasi-randomization. I would say you have to have a, a great deal of caution in interpreting that evidence. And I'd, and I'd go into more about, about why that is. But that's what I would, I think the big point that I think economics can bring to how doctors just practice. Well, wait, you were just talking about the natural experiments, right? And how they're not randomized. So how, it seems to me that that's a contradiction, right? Yeah. Good I question. mean, I'm sure so, it isn't, but you know, it's, it's not. And, and the reason why is in a, in a randomized experiment, you've got a person who is literally doing the randomization in a natural experiment. There's no individual who's doing the randomization, but there's something in nature that has led to what we call in economics, quasi randomization, just to sort of separate it from the idea that there's no experimenter who is literally putting numbers into a computer and running a random number generator. That's the, that's the idea. So um, and let me give you an, an example, um, not from my own work, but from others' work. Suppose that you were interested in knowing whether certain medications in the ICU improve mortality. So if you've got a patient who has a low blood pressure, they've got a bacterial infection, they have sepsis, they're in the ICU, there are medications that ICU doctors use to raise the blood pressure of those patients. We call them pressors. Um, do pressors improve mortality? That would be a natural question. Now, you could study that by conducting a randomized trial, and that would be really useful. But it may be that you couldn't study that in every single population that you would be interested in. Maybe the effects of, of pressors are, are positive or beneficial in some groups of patients, but maybe they're not useful or maybe they're harmful in other types of patients who present with different kinds of, of conditions. So a natural experiment might be to look at a situation where there was a national shortage of pressor medications because of some production problem. And you look at patients who were admitted to the ICU just by chance during the weeks when those medications were in national shortage and weren't being used as often compared to the weeks before where there was no shortage. And obviously, patients didn't decide to have sepsis based on knowledge or lack thereof of whether or not there was a national shortage of pressor medications. It's totally random. And you could see that. You could look at patients who were in the ICU during a period of shortage versus any other period, 
and you could show that the characteristics of those patients are basically identical, which means that there's been this quasi-randomization. And that would then allow you to study the causal effect of uh, a pressure medication on ICU mortality. So that's sort of an example. That's, that's a great example. Um, thank you for, uh, for explaining that. I want to ask you about the pandemic because you said that, you know, one of the things that you'd want physicians to take away from economics is one of the things that's, that are studied rather by, by economists is, is the decision-making decision-making by physicians, decision-making by patients. And so I think a lot of the decisions made by patients during the pandemic, I'm not, it's not in our rearview mirror yet, but you know, a lot of it, <laughs> depending on where you live, it, it could yeah. be in another city, but yeah. Um, so what is what has the pandemic taught you about how patients make decisions? And were there any surprises there? Um, I don't I don't know that there were any surprises. I, I think the pandemic has really highlighted what is a very important and underappreciated issue in medicine. And that is the role of two factors in in patient decision-making. So one is information, and two is values and preferences that lead to trade-offs. So what do I mean by that? You know, before the pandemic, a doctor could make a recommendation to a patient about a drug to use. And uh, they could say, look, this drug has been shown to be effective in randomized trials. The drug is recommended by treatment guidelines. I prescribe this drug a lot. I have great experience with it and, it and it really works, but then the patient decides not to take it. And then you, you're left with wondering, well, why is it that the person decided not to take it? Is it an information problem, meaning the information wasn't conveyed to them or they didn't understand the information? Or is it a, a values and preferences problem? Maybe there's a reason they don't actually want to take the medication. Maybe there's a particular side effect that is uncommon, but can happen, and they don't want to experience that. So they've made a determination based on, on full information. Now, take that sort of dynamic and now blow it up completely. And that's where we are in the pandemic, right? <laughs> We've yeah. got recommendations um, by public health authorities and physicians across a whole range of things, ranging from masking to social distancing, then fast forward a little bit further into the, into the pandemic about vaccines, fast forward a little bit further, uh, vaccines in young kids, fast forward even further, booster vaccines, all of these different types of recommendations with greatly varying uh, levels of evidence and certainly greatly varying levels of trade-offs. So even in an environment where people have full information and we know with, with high quality, what is the, the, the true effect of masking what is the true effect of lockdowns? What is the true effect of vaccines? If we knew those things with certainty, we still might be in an environment where lots of people wouldn't want to wear masks, where lots of people wouldn't want to be subject to lockdowns. And that's because people's preferences might differ. So what I might want or what you might want may be different than what a third person might want. And I think the biggest lesson that I would take, at least from the pandemic, is A, it's incredibly important to have good information, and we've had a dearth of good information across a number of really important decisions that we had to make, and, and some of that information still is 
quite, quite, you know, sorely lacking. Uh, but the second thing is, I think we have to approach, you know, really appreciate the trade-offs that we ask people to make and realize that even though something might feel right or important to me, it may not feel right or important to someone else, even if we're dealing with the same information and that is high quality information. I didn't hear you say misinformation. So in all of that discussion, it seems like, well, do we need to bring the public up to speed so that they can have better understanding and, you know, recognize the trade-offs that they're making? Because there's this whole other information out there that's deceiving them and misleading them and entrenching them in um, in misinformation. And then I feel like once they're stuck in there, you you can't get them out. You can't just provide, you can't educate them out of misinformation. Yeah. So the, I guess a, let me just step back for a second. You're asking a really fundamental question is, what is the causal effect of misinformation? Meaning, is misinformation leading people to make different choices than they otherwise would want to make? It's certainly possible that it could. It makes sense that it could. But it's also possible that people are sort of searching for information to support their own beliefs and the decisions that they want to make. And I think that's a huge um, component uh, of it. I mean, let me let me give you a good example that is unrelated to the pandemic. You know, there's this recent study that just came out about colonoscopies. Um, and it was a trial conducted in in various European countries. The the trial is was reported in the media as being a negative study, meaning that colonoscopies uh, did not improve um, overall survival. But the same information is being interpreted dramatically differently by different people. So you've got a bunch of people who say, look, this is a null study. We shouldn't be recommending colonoscopies. They're expensive. People don't want to have them for obvious reasons. Uh, there are some risks. And then you have a completely different group of people who are highly informed, probably mostly gastroenterologists who do these procedures, um, saying, no, look, this is the study is wrong for X, Y, and Z reason. And they may be right. One group may or may, may be right. Um, but it's certainly striking that the sort of views that people take when they interpret the information, one could have predicted in advance. Like I could have predicted what gastroenterologists would have said about the study without knowing anything about the study. And so there is this issue of how much of the problem is really truly misinformation versus a failure of public health um, to recognize that when there are such serious trade-offs that we ask of people, for example, economic lockdowns, huge trade-off, uh, huge, huge things to ask of people, masking in all spaces. You know, I'm I'm not averse to masking by any means, uh, but it is hard to do. I mean, it would be foolish for me to say that it's not hard to do. Uh, so it is a trade-off. Anything where we see such large trade-offs that are occurring, I think we've got to be wondering whether or not people are going to be trying to search for the science that corroborates the views and the decisions that they want to make already. So you're saying that they're, they've made the decision, right, based on their values. And they've, the decision is the trade-off isn't worth it. Now I'm just going to find the science to back up my my, my, belief. my, exactly. my decision, the decision. Exactly. That I, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, I certainly think misinformation is a problem. And I think that it can have a, have a true causal effect on behavior. Uh, but I think that this other, this other sort of issue is really quite large.
But again, we need to, you know, we need to figure it out. I mean, it's it's hard to study. Yes, misinformation is a problem, but we also have to understand that some of these people might just not have the same values as us. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, both things can be true at the same time. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I'm talking to an, an economist here, so we need to talk about money, right? And so the money, like you said, it's 20% of the of the U.S. GDP. That's just an insane amount, much of which is driven by the decision-making of doctors. Like most of the, the money is spent based on our, our decisions. Um, and so some of that money is not spent so wisely. So I, so I want to talk to you a little about value-based purchasing, right? So we've been hearing, I've been hearing about value-based purchasing since I started my training, which is like, you know, almost 20 years ago at this point. And, um, you know, now I'm seeing patients discharged from the ER with paperwork that tells them that they should eat better. And I think that's because it needs to check a box for Medicare that says that they're doing something, you know, I don't, I'm not an emergency medicine physician, so I don't know what they're supposed to be telling people, but I'm sure there's a reason that that's automatically in their paperwork, you know, after <laughs> yeah, they're discharged yeah. for a peritonsillar abscess or something, yeah, yeah. eat better. Um, so we, we do, we want to incentivize physicians based on outcomes to, to make sure that they're practicing the best medicine possible. Um, but, you know, but it doesn't seem to be moving the needle very much. Like, how do we, is this something that, I know this is, I'm asking 11 questions at the same time, I apologize. You know, is this something that, that really is fits within the domain of primary care where you can measure something like hemoglobin A1C and, you know, and, and, and track long-term outcomes, but, or, or can we get into, you know, granular stuff with the ophthalmologists and the urologists uh, about some of the, you know, the subsets of the population with, with less common issues? Yeah. I mean, there's like probably 25 questions at, at, yeah, mo at, at least. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, well, I, let me just make a couple observations. One is, the idea of value-based purchasing, it kind of rolls off the tongue as if it's sort of like, oh yeah, value-based purchasing. We should definitely be doing that. Yeah. But we don't do that almost anywhere else in the economy, right? So it's a hot day in, in the city of Boston and you just went for a run and you go to the 7-Eleven convenience store and you buy a bottle of water. You might be willing to spend $7 for that bottle of water. If, you, if it was really hot and you hadn't drank any water all day, they don't charge you $7. There's nobody saying, okay, 7-Eleven, let's do value-based purchasing for Brad well, and Uber surge pricing. The Uber surge, surge price. that's the, yeah. That's like, yeah, yeah, that comes to mind, yeah. Yeah, so there's no value-based purchasing for so much of what we do in, in our economic lives. Now, the reason that we talk about it in medicine is for two reasons. One is that we think, um, you know, we worry about how prices are set and we worry about paying for things that are variable quality. Uh, and so we say, well, you know what, we're going to do value-based purchasing, which means that we're only going to pay for hospital care if it meets sufficient standards so that we can call it high quality. And otherwise, we're not going to pay for it. That really is sort of, we can call that value-based purchasing. But another way to say it is that, look, when it's fundamentally difficult to measure quality, we want to be able to still try to measure quality in some ways and make sure that what we're paying for is is higher quality and not and not lower quality. So I think that is the big conundrum. The question then is is how do you measure quality in healthcare? And you refer to CMS or Medicare, Medicaid services. You know, they do things, health plans do things to try to measure quality. Are they fully capturing what what patients and physicians would perceive to be quality? Probably not. 
are they capturing some things that are really important? Yeah, probably so. So for example, if you've got a heart attack, uh, patients and doctors would be worried about whether or not you live or die uh, within 30 days of having that heart attack. Very reasonable sort of quality measure. Um, the challenge with even reasonable quality measures is, is what you're measuring really at the hands of control of the doctors, the other providers, the hospital system. So if we see that Dr. A has a higher mortality rate for his or her patients compared to Dr. B, is that because Dr. A is a worse doctor than Dr. B? Or is it because the patients that Dr. A treats are different than, than Dr. B's patients? That is really difficult to measure because we, we don't randomize patients to Dr. A and Dr. B. So when I think about value-based purchasing, my head almost blows up because there's there's a lot of promise to it. It sounds very intuitive. And in, in, in a lot of ways, I think it is an important thing to strive for, to not pay or support care that's low quality, uh, not only from a financial perspective, but also from a quality perspective. Like, you know, we don't want doctors to be doing low quality things, hospitals to be doing low quality things. We want to make sure that if we know something is low quality, we can take the steps to improve that. That has nothing to do with economic considerations. It can, but really it's just about quality in that case. Well, isn't it economic, right? Because then you're, for instance, like MRIs for low back pain, right? Patients got acute low back pain. I'm on Long Island. Patients can sometimes be very demanding, you know, they're like, I want an MRI. I want to make sure that there's is not. It, is you know, that where the Hamptons are? Is that is that, is that yes. what you mean by Long Island? Okay, I know what you mean. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm not in that part of Long Island. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, suburban. You know, it's an island. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a long island. It's a long island. Um, yeah. there's a lot to. So, you know, patients might come in demanding an MRI. I've got. I've had two weeks of back pain. Right. That's not. I'm an otolaryngologist, but as far as I know, that's not good care to be getting one that early, but people can be really demanding and doctors can be really defensive. You know, you don't want it to affect your Yelp review. You don't want it to end up missing something and getting sued. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of people would could argue that that is a low quality, a low yield thing to do. And it's expensive and we have finite resources. We're 20% of the GDP already. And, you know, the, the outcomes are not as, you know, aren't reflected in the cost you know there are many countries that do things just as well without spending nearly as much so it you know, right it, it is it is an economic thing so but how do you get involved in that without taking away from patient autonomy taking away from physician autonomy how do we get rid of some of those low value things that are draining resources from the system yeah so i, I don't let you know i don't want to suggest that this is not an economic issue. I certainly think it's an economic issue, but I'd also say that independent of it being an economic issue, it's a, a, a quality issue. Uh, meaning, so you just focused on the fact that the MRI is expensive, right? which is true. Uh, there's also a problem. Well, you know, if you get the MRI and the MRI shows that your back is fine, but it finds something else, which you didn't know that you had, you get it worked up, you get a biopsy, you get a complication of that biopsy, and now you have a whole set of other medical problems that you maybe would not have had. So I would, I, I think that the economic considerations are certainly very important, but as I think about high value care, low value care, I also think about what is the impact of care on the quality of um, the medical care that, that patients receive. Now, you asked a separate question of is, you know, how do we strike the balance between 
patient autonomy, prescriber autonomy, and sort of what value-based care, which the way it gets operationalized is is sort of um, regulations and policies that uh, guide what doctors and patients do or should do. So in the case of uh, back pain, for example, uh, you know, a policy that an insurer might have would say, look, you can't get you can't get an MRI for back pain unless you meet these criteria. Because if you don't meet these criteria, we'd really call that low value medical care. And we don't want to, you know, we don't want to support low value medical care. Now, there are going to be some patients who are going to be really anxious and going to say, look, I get it, but I want that that MRI. There's going to be doctors who are very cautious and they're going to say, look, I want that MRI. And the way that our current healthcare system accounts for that is to say, fine, if you want it, you have to pay more for it. So there is, you know, you can still have sort of a focus on paying for value, but still ensuring some autonomy among patients and doctors, but it's not sort of a free lunch. So there has to be a price to pay for that uh, autonomy. I think where the problem comes in is when it's not really about preferences per se, but doctors are, are thinking, this is absolutely medically indicated. And I'm getting pushback as to whether or not this is appropriate or not. And you hear that um, quite a bit. And you hear stories about this um, with insurers quite often. And I think that is a, is a, is a huge problem. And that the cost of prior authorizations, utilization management, in terms of time that insurers take to deal with it, time that physicians take to deal with it, it's, it's, it's enormous. Um, it, it causes problems for the profession, I think. Uh, it, it leads people to not to want to practice medicine. Uh, so there's certainly drawbacks of it. There are obviously benefits if it leads to appropriate care in, in some instances. And I think the goal should really be to streamline this process, to really figure out, all right, here's a situation where it's egregious to do it. And here's a situation where it's egregious not to do it. We have the medical knowledge. We have the tools to be able to figure that sort of stuff out uh, at this day and age. So how do we how do we accomplish that though? Like, do you utilize the legal system? I know you're you're an economist and a physician, and not a lawyer, maybe. Yeah, not yet. No. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, do you utilize the legal system? Do you say you know what I what I hear other physicians say that the insurance company is practicing medicine without a license? They're telling me what I can and can't do, and in here's a situation where it's egregious, and we're going to hold their feet to the fire by utilizing the legal system. I mean, is is that how you? When you find yourself mired yeah, in that situation, I mean that 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 can help. Um, you know, the typical way economists hope this problem gets solved is through competition. Now, there's a, a a feature of of healthcare which makes competition a little bit harder in this particular concept context, right? So, like, imagine you had a, a service industry where a service provider wasn't doing a good job servicing its clients, its its customers. What would we observe in, in, in a competitive market? We'd observe another service provider to come in and say, look, I'm going to do the same thing, but just better. I'm going to treat you better and give you the product that you want. And what would happen? People would move from that first provider to the second one. That's how competition uh, would operate. Now, the analogy here is, all right, if there's an insurance plan that makes it really difficult for people to get the medical care that they and their doctors want, we would expect that with competition, maybe another plan would come up that would offer something better. Now, we have this problem in medicine, or sorry, we have this problem in economics that we refer to as adverse selection. It's the idea that uh, in this particular case, 
if an insurer came in and said, look, we're going to offer a plan that it's more streamlined, allows you to get the medical care that you want more quickly, more efficiently. Well, guess what types of patients that insurance plan is going to recruit? The types of patients who are going to be seeking that sort of more expensive and costly medical care. And so that problem of adverse selection, it, it actually causes a lot of problems in insurance markets that economists have thought a lot about, policymakers have thought a lot about, um, um, but it, it sort of pro pro prohibits or prevents um, competition from working effectively in, in, in that way. So you know, it, it's tough. I would say that, like, that if there mobility. was a solution, it would already happen. An easy way. We also don't have mobility, right? Because if you're the individual that that's happening to, you can't just say, you know what, I'm going to switch from Cigna to Aetna. Yeah, you're going to say, you're going to, you're going to say, well, I can't switch jobs. Like if you're the head of HR, maybe you could switch insurance plans, but that one person has the leverage to be able to do that, right? But anyone else that's working for that company is going to be like, I, I need this job. I can't, you know. And then I switch jobs. Now I'm without health insurance for a couple of months until my insurance benefits kick in. You know, it's the the fact that we're an employer-based system is is a huge problem for for that competition that we need to be able to hold their feet to the fire. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a lot of challenges with sort of how insurance is provided through the employer-sponsored uh, uh, way that it's it's very different in the U.S. than it's in other, in other countries. So let's talk more about cost, right? You had said that, you know, the individual, if they really wanted that MRI, they can go outside of their insurance system, they can pay with cash. Okay, I'm that patient. How much is it going to cost me? Right? You can have that type of price transparency with an MRI. Mm -hmm. If a patient calls my office and says, I'd like to see Dr. Block, how much is it going to cost me? The answer is, how complicated is your problem? Is it a level one? Level two, level three, level four. Am I going to be doing a nasal endoscopy, a laryngoscopy, a cerumen removal, a biopsy, an ultrasound? You know, what am I going to be doing this, during this visit? Well, I've got, you know, a lump in my throat. Oh, well, that could be your thyroid. Maybe we'll do an ultrasound. That could be your, your uh, globus sensation. Maybe we'll do a laryngoscopy. These all cost different things. So if a patient calls me up, not even my front desk, me, and asks me how much is it going to cost, I can't give them a number. And yet, we're supposed to be transparent about pricing. How are we possibly going to be, how could we possibly be transparent about pricing in, in, in situations like this? It's really difficult. Uh, you know, I'll just tell you, there is a, a large literature that looks at this question of whether or not price transparency leads consumers, customers, patients to pick the lowest price care. Right, you would think that that's what would happen, just like when you go on Amazon and you're shopping for uh, Tupperware or like you know forks for your kids to take to school. Usually, you can see a whole list of different products. You see all the reviews. You see the prices. You can quite easily pick the lowest price one that has pretty good reviews. And it's Amazon Prime. I'm not. I'm not sponsored by Amazon Prime, <laughs> by the way. Um, but you know, you could do that, right? It's really hard to do in medicine. Right. Would you, if you're a patient and you need a an orthopedic procedure, are you going to say, "Let me try to find the cheapest orthopedic surgeon out there"? <laughs> no, that's not what you do, right? And the same thing, it, it turns out, is true for things that we might call more commoditized, like a laboratory test or an MRI. Um, if you show people the prices of MRIs, if you show them the prices of lab tests through a price transparency tool people are often not picking 
the cheapest one. And it's hard to know why they're not picking the cheapest one. Maybe it's because their doctor recommends getting an MRI at a particular place. Maybe because they think that the radiologists who read that MRI are going to be better. Maybe they are plugged into the electronic medical record system that the MRI uh, provider or uses, so it's easier for the person who actually ordered that MRI to be performed. Uh, maybe the MRI facility is actually closer to the person's house. So the MRI cost could be 50 bucks more or 100 bucks more, but it's much more convenient. It's right across the street from the where the person works. So we would observe that a person just chose a more expensive MRI than a, a bunch of cheaper MRIs, and we wouldn't know why. And maybe that could be uh, uh, could be a reason. So I don't think that price transparency should really hurt consumer or patient decision-making. How much it helps is a little bit unclear. I will say that the literature that studies these issues finds that most patients who have access to a price transparency tool, to a price transparency, price transparency tool, they don't use it. And moreover, they don't tend to you know, choose and search for the cheapest options. That's, that's what happens now. Maybe it would be different if many more people used it, if it was more common. But at this point in time, that's what the, what the literature says. Okay, so value-based care, value-based purchasing, not affecting much care, price transparency, Price transparency, not affecting much care. These are these are the big ideas that have been, you know, bounced around for a while. It doesn't seem like anything's moving the needle very much. That's, I mean, you know, if it were moving the needle, we would be having this conversation. Uh, right, I've moved the needle a lot. So, when you and I trained, we we learned under the the, the fifth vital sign was pain, right? And we were taught that under treating, we were going to under treat pain. And when I was a student, I felt almost like they were like we were being attacked. Like you're going to be this cold hearted physician that's going to under treat pain and you lack empathy. You believe your patients. None of you are going to believe your patients. You're a heartless physician, right? You'll under treat pain. But turns out that way of thinking fueled the opioid crisis, right? Like the uh, the pharmaceutical companies, that situation kind of pulled the wool over our eyes. Um, and so, you know, there's now more fund funding disclosure for research. Do, do you think funding disclosure alone is enough to prevent something like that, that magnitude from happening again? Um, you know, for, I, I mean, I would say there's a lot of things that are related to the, to the opiate epidemic. We actually done some work looking like the people that proposed this idea that pain is the fifth vital sign was a driver of the opioid epidemic. Um, it's so it's hard to show that you know, empirically. Maybe it was. We we have done some work. It's um, it's not published yet, but and and it's sort of evolving. But we've looked at what happens when the um, accreditation organizations visit hospitals and visit offices uh, to see what happens to opioid prescribing in the weeks after versus the weeks before. And this was during a period when accreditation organizations were monitoring the adequacy of pain control of patients in these settings. And, um, you know, we don't see much of a change before or after these accreditation organizations visit uh, a hospital, which, you know, is sort of interesting because there was a point in time when they made a, they made a big deal about, about the adequacy of pain control. So, 
you know, it's hard to know whether or not that particular movement, the pain of the pain as a fifth vital sign movement was, um, you know, a key driver. We certainly, people certainly talk about it being that, but this sort of falls back into the question of, of, of research. Like there's so many things that could be true that feel like they might be true. Um, but are they true? And they all deserve sort of empirical investigation. That makes me feel a little better because as a student, I was told that I was going to be under treating my patient's pain and I'm an awful person. And now I'm being told that I was of the generation that drove the opioid crisis. So now, you know, you made me feel a little, little better. About, well, my, my job is about only that. to make you feel better. That's my job. <laughs> You're doing it. You're doing a great job. You're I appreciate it. Job. I appreciate it. Okay. So let's a little, a little levity now, a little levity. One of your research papers was about golf. So first, do you play golf? I don't play golf now. Neither do I. I don't play golf. But there are a lot of physicians who do. So you covered, you know, who plays the most golf, who's the best, which specialties are the best golfers, right? You got into our, our competitive spirit. Um, so um, the question is, who, who are the best golfers? Which specialties make the best, the best golfers? You know, that's a good question. It, it was a couple of years ago. We, this is a study that we published in the Christmas issue of the BMJ, British Medical Journal, which is sort of a funny, a funny issue. Um, I think it was orthopedic surgeons. I don't remember where uh, otolaryngologists were. They might have been we, playing, playing so much golf that it just broke the computer to even analyze. We were up there. We were definitely they must, up there. They're up there, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, it's interesting because we had these, these data from... Um, so I, I don't play golf, you don't play golf, but I'm told that people who do play golf record their performance in some centralized database, which I think is used for handicaps and things like that when you play in tournaments and, and play against other competitors. But there's this data that you can actually get. I don't know if it's from the PGA or what, what, the, what the, the database is, I don't recall. But we had the names of individuals and we could link that information to publicly available information on physicians. And we know the names of physicians because that's, that's public information. And so we could look and see who spent the most time on the golf course, who had the best scores. I think orthopedic surgeons, surgeons were up there actually. And then the next question I think that could be asked, just throwing this out there is which specialty makes the best golfer per time spent playing, right? Cause if you've got tons of time on your hands, a great, but really who's using their time the best. And I'd also want to know who cheats the most. Oh, I don't know who cheats. My guess is that orthopedics, orthopedists would also be the most efficient. So in other words, you got two groups of doctors who spend the same amount, which one is going to perform better? The, the orthopedic surgeons are often very, you know, physically active people. It's and they're not going to be lollygagging around. No, you know, I've seen no. them. We've seen their notes on rounds. You know, yeah. they're not, they're not exactly. chit chatting. Their time is very valuable. That's going to be reflected on the golf course as well. That They're getting down to business. Okay. <laughs> so, so uh, we, we'd be remiss not to talk about your podcast, right? Which, which I love Freakonomics MD. And I think it bears mentioning that you are, um, th they don't lend the name Freakonomics very lightly. So, you know, the fact that, that, that they gave you the, that they're they're that you're able to use the Freakonomics name in your podcast is uh you know is a tremendous compliment um and the the episodes are super interesting super entertaining um so just to give the audience my audience a, a little taste of, of what you've covered just give us an idea you know one 
of your episodes, what's one of the more surprising things that you've learned in your podcasting? Yeah. So, you know, the, the show Freakonomics MD is really about the intersection between, we, we say it's the hidden side of healthcare uh, and Freakonomics was the hidden side of everything. So it's really sort of the, the Freakonomics of medicine. I'd say a good chunk of it is based on the work that I've done, but most of it in most in, in recent uh, episodes has focused on the research of um, of others. Uh, the pilot episode, actually the first episode on the show, I'll just tell you that one because we're talking about the COVID pandemic, was um, what we called the, the COVID birthdays episode. And it was basically based on a story of my daughter who turned five or six in the pandemic. And uh, we decided to host a Zoom birthday for her instead of a, an in-person birthday. And that decision got me thinking about whether or not we could use birthdays as a way to measure the effect of small social gatherings on COVID-19 spread. And we had data from these from a large insurance company, so we knew the birthdays of people. We didn't know whether they were celebrating with an actual birthday, but we knew what their physical, whether the actual birthday was. And what we showed is that if you look at households that are in the same county in the same week, if one member of that household has a birthday, they were about 20% more likely to develop a COVID-19 infection in the next two weeks compared to an otherwise similar household in that same county in that same week where no member had a birthday. And of course, the birthdays are, are random. So this is really a nice, clean, natural experiment. And so it spoke to the role that small social gatherings with people that you know and trust, that's who you're inviting to a birthday, presumably, can have on disease spread. And the other thing that we found that was really interesting was that the, the birthday effect was no different in highly Republican versus highly Democratic counties. So whatever Republicans and Democrats might have been saying publicly about their behaviors and their decisions about social distancing and masking and all that really important stuff, uh, when it came to their private behaviors, at least with respect to something as important as a birthday, they seem to be behaving quite similarly. And the other thing I'll say is most of the effect is there when a household has a child with a birthday, right? Because Brad, if you and I have a birthday, we can probably, we, you might even forget your birthday. It's <laughs> yeah. because you're, we're getting old now, but you don't forget a child's birthday. Um, and you want to celebrate that. And so that's what we picked up in, in that study. So that podcast, Freakonomics MD, is about, in part, studies like that. It's about um, interesting stuff that's happening in medicine and economics. Um, so that's what we're doing in, in the show. I have a book coming out, by the way, which I actually don't know that I can say the name of the book, but it's coming out next summer. Probably the name will be released very soon. Um, uh, but it's going to be very similar uh, in, in in spirit to the types of topics I talk about in the podcast. It's interesting that you drew that conclusion that it's the the the, the about small gatherings on birthdays because I would assume it's because birthday cake lowers your immunity. You know, it, it makes could you be that more too. vulnerable to infection. No, yeah, that could be true. It could, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, we had a birthday recently, and and. Uh, um, saw one of the kids there, like, you know, when they lit the candle, they blew it out, you know, huge, huge amount of, uh, aerosolization happening. <laughs> then the kid wanted the candle lit again, lit the candle again, 
again, a tremendous amount of aerosolization. So I don't know what, what the mechanism of action is. Maybe it's the frosting. Maybe it's the blowing out the cake. Maybe it's everybody singing at the top of the lungs, happy birthday in a closed confined space, any of the above. It's, it's hard to see that now. You know, before the pandemic, it was like, oh, gross, there's a little spittle. But it's hard to see it now without, like, imagining just plumes of virus just circulating out of the mouth and through the air after that. Yeah, no. I, I think the way that we view coughs and sneezes and runny noses, at least for a while, will change. Um it's certainly different now. Like if you go into an elevator and you see someone sneeze, you're like, what next floor, happened? I'm out. Yeah. What, what just happened? <laughs> well, again, I love the podcast. Good luck with the book. We'll certainly keep our, our eyes out for it. Um, it's Freakonomics MD, Dr. Bapu Jenna. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.